I was just appreciating tonight the, and of course I was imagining this, but I imagine that, that of the 65, 70 people who are here tonight, you all carry with you, and maybe even that which brought you to practice itself was some, some either challenge or uh, some, something about the various identities that you carry around with you that are just a function of our, of our life uh, that we are born into. Sometimes it's an identity with uh, your race. Sometimes it's an identity with addiction or with uh, gender or sexual orientation or uh, culture of origin, language. We come with, with a whole range of identities and it's a beautiful thing that the, when you come to the Dharma, all your identities are welcome. They're both welcome in an explicit way, you know, by actually welcoming them. And we, as a function of our practice, as part of our practice, we welcome our identities. We don't try to get rid of our identities. We welcome our differences. We welcome the parts of ourselves that we think are different, that we sometimes think are some expression of of lack or deficiency, we welcome it all. We welcome it all. And it is really the, the very function of the, the natural qualities that we have within us, the qualities of, of love, of goodwill, that, it, uh, that our openness uh, it begins to erase some of our ill will. Uh, our tendency to separate, our tendency to separate parts of ourselves, to reject some and to grab onto others. Goodwill keeps spreading that circle of affection. And, our, and if goodwill is, is spread, if our, the, if our radiation of goodwill widens, then our circle of caring also increases. And if our circle of caring increases, we, we less see ourselves ju- exclusively in whatever that identity is, and we widen our circle of identity and caring to include people who are different than us, who have different identities. And through the widening of our caring, we reduce our ill will. I mean, we reduce, yeah, we reduce our ill will. <laughs> what was I th- didn't I just say that about love? <laughs> now we reduce our separation, we reduce our ill will. And the wider my circle of affection, and, and it's something that I don't have to necessarily think about, it's something that just happens as, my, as I come into an experience of quiet, of, you could say, of the, the sameness of just direct experience before my mind separates things, that some of the boundaries, some of those separations start to melt away and then I'm here together with you and you're here together with me. And that itself produces a kind of joy. One of the joys is my mind isn't separating. It's not creating stress. Another joy is, of course, if I'm, if I'm developing the habit of present time, real time awareness, 
I'm coming much more into a, a simple relationship with the present moment. The present moment is, stops for a little while being uh, a pass-through place on my way to wherever I think I'm going, and it becomes the very destination that I've been searching for. And that gladdens my heart. That makes me feel joy. And then I, that joy kind of rubs off and I feel the joy and maybe we feel the joy of being together. At no point denying any of the differences that we came here with, our different identities, but we, we drop into the universal sense of, of love, of caring, of joy, and then a kind of evenness of mind that grows when we're spending a little bit more time developing mindful attention, which is a mind that's not reacting. It's not pushing away. It's not grabbing. It's even. It's open. And all of this occurs because you chose to um, come here tonight, to stop to keep quiet, to look within in the company of others, both being supported by and supporting each other. Uh, It was just a beautiful thing that all of our differences are intact, but we come come together to share this kind of universal uh, desire for wholeness and to recognize that within our mind streams, within our heart-mind, that we have this capacity to be really inclusive, uh, both including our own difficulties, including each other's difficulties, and uh, including uh, all our great capacity for joy and happiness and well-being. It's amazing, just the power of attention. Now, you may have walked around all day thinking, life, life is terrible. Everything's screwed up, you know, and if you at all are glued to the tube or glued to the media, you'd think the sky is falling. And it's really easy to forget that in the middle of it is this capacity to be at least someone in, the, in this world who's, who's planting the seeds of well-being and joy. Not greed, not hatred, not ignorance. And the key ingredient that's so accessible to everyone is putting our mind in our body. That's the, it's the secret sauce is having your mind settled in your body. The second secret sauce is tuning in, tuning in to the pleasure of that. Not overlooking it because if you, miss, if you overlook that simple experience of being embodied, of for moments stepping out of the identity of doer, of becomer, if you actually taste that sense of being, it starts cutting through your usual version of yourself. That version often, uh, not just the version that's associated with our past identities, but the version of ourself that's very systemic and culturally based, the version of you that says, right now, I'm not enough, and if I do enough, become enough, 
get somewhere, then I'll be, then I'll be okay. It's a narrative of lack, of insufficiency, that we, can, we literally cannot find on present evidence. Can't find when we stop. And if you, if you can't find it when you stop, and you do, you look with curiosity, you know, with mindfulness, what do you find? What do you find on present evidence? You find a, there's a certain delight in just being present. And there's often, as I like to say, there's a feeling of enough, of sufficiency. And we think, oh, I created it by being mindful. And No, it's mindfulness just brings us, puts us in the neighborhood of what's actually happening. And we discover that, as Nisargadatta Maharaj says, the natural happiness of being conscious. It's uncreated. It's unconditional. As a monk named um, Ajahn Amaro puts it, uh, you discover, and I've stolen this, you discover the, the natural peace and ease that is the natural peace and ease of your own nature. So if you do this on a regular basis, you actually train your mind and heart to be happy, to be well, to be whole. You untrain your mind to be lacking. You literally decondition that view of yourself that something else has to happen in order for you to be happy. You start planting seeds, putting drops in the bucket of well-being and happiness. And it really is a matter of how, it is a matter of how much you remember. Some have translated the word mindfulness as remembering. Remembering what you always already are and what is available to you. But in the teachings of, of the development of mindfulness, mindfulness is described as as enhancing the wholesome qualities in our heart and mind. So it enhances the qualities of clarity, of goodwill, as I was talking about before, of caring, of joy, of equanimity, of, of non-clinging, of generosity, of patience. It, it enhances the wholesome qualities and it decreases the unwholesome qualities. Ill will, irritation, frustration, self-interest, self um, um, you, whatever, unwholesome qualities. Now, you don't have to be busy cultivating the wholesome qualities, uh, get ridding, getting rid of the unwholesome the function of mindful attention mixed with kindness itself, as Ramdas calls it, loving awareness. That's what you are anyway. You just 
Get used to it. Get used to it. Be a field of loving awareness, of awareness with kindness. And do it over and over again. Reason I'm giving you this spiel tonight, I shouldn't put it as in the, shouldn't call it a spiel, but the reason I'm speaking like this tonight is I wanted to speak of an opportunity that you have to, in a much more intensive way, nurture these wholesome qualities. Nurture your practice over the next 100 days. Today is the beginning of Mission Dharma's <laughs> autumn 100-day. We're calling it a 100-day retreat, but we could also call it the 100-day treat. The 100-day treat where you treat yourself at least four times a day to some version of uh, practice, um, mindful attention, some version of loving-kindness practice, some way that you are developing the practice. And I'll put it in the context of two different lists that you can think of cultivating. And the, the first thing that you want to do with this hundred days is attune and articulate in your own mind what your aspiration is, what you would like to why you're practicing. You want to really consider it. And you want to keep referring to why you're practicing. And so that gives fuel to this time that you spend. It's understood that it takes some kind of habit strength in order to uh, develop the habit. So that this quality of attention, which is so innate and natural to us, begins to follow us around nearer than our breath. And that it just pops up on its own no matter where you are. How does that happen? We have to refer to it. We have a lot of habit strength. What is mostly our habit strength? Being lost in thought. Spinning out. Imagining the past, imagining the future, imagining the present, imagining stories about ourselves. This is what we have practiced most. We have practiced distracting ourselves any possible way. Forgetting that the, at least in, in Dharma terms and the teachings, the way out is in. What we're actually looking for in our life can only be found in the, in the living present. Any other time is imaginary. If not now, when? You've probably heard Rabbi Hillel. If not now, when? And if not me, who else? It's not as though God is going to bestow grace on you if you just, if you just think something like that. You, it, it requires a certain kind of commitment. So you can put it in the con- your aspiration in the context of, I think of three lists that, that inspire me in the practice. One is the list of the pillars of the Dharma. You know, there's a list of the, of the three refuges, and we can certainly follow that list. Uh, the, I'll go through a, a few different, I'll go through three lists, okay? And see if any one of those actually uh, inspires you to both remember and to uh, use it as your springboard to your practice. 
First list, the three pillars of the Dharma. Dana, which Mary beautifully spoke about. The practice of generosity. Commit during this next hundred days to at some point in every day exercising an, an act of generosity with your, with your actions, with your speech, with your resources, make some kind of offering of, of generosity. And even if not in your formal uh, attempt to share generously, when the impulse arises to be generous, follow it. Don't hold back. This was considered the first pillar of the Dharma. Because the Buddha, as you all know, most of you have heard these teachings before, the, the Buddha gave to lay people like us, this was the first teaching he always offered, is, is that you can liberate your heart, free your mind from clinging and grasping. It's one of the ways that we free ourselves from grasping, from following through with the impulse to give. That, that particular kind of act of letting go because it, it gives joy in the thought of it, joy in the act of it, joy in the memory of it. And he said if we knew the power of it, we wouldn't let a single meal pass without sharing it and we would just be practicing it all the time. Letting it grow in our life so that we move from where we start in, a, in this culture and in this identity of lack, we start from a place of what the Buddha called beggarly giving. And you move slowly through, at least in the language of the traditional old, you know, old Buddhist teachings, through princess and prince, princely giving where you give what you like but you can still afford to get rid of. And then queenly and kingly giving where you, care, you give away that which, which you care most about that, will, that means that you're actually... Uh, willing to do without in order to be able to, uh, to grow in that quality of giving. That's queenly or kingly giving. So to some act of generosity every day. So that's that pillar. Sila, where you train. Sila is conduct, ethics, morality, where you make a commitment every day to to cultivate the joy that comes from being blameless, from non-harming, the happiness and freedom that comes from, from not having to have the effects of your actions uh, reverberate in your mind or reverberate in anybody else's life. So you commit to not harming any living being. And that's traditionally not killing. And that's a, it's a very interesting precept or, um, or reflection, especially in this time where so many of us over so many years have, for example, eaten whatever we, whatever we craved without a lot of consideration that maybe there was a being that was being killed in order for us to feed that craving. Now, some people take this precept and they really attune to not killing living beings and they can't eat meat anymore. 
Other people will say, well, that's part of the food chain. You know, there's a whole, it's not meant to be a commandment. It's meant to really take it to heart. What does it mean not to kill? What does it mean not to steal, not to take that which is not not offered? What does it mean? And the flip side of that is to live with uh, simplicity, live with contentment, not be so dependent on the, the craving in our mind. So not killing, not stealing, respecting other people's property, not, uh, not causing any harm to ourselves or others through our sexuality, which means to, to, it, to protect your own and other people's boundaries to, because we, we are so permeable and and there's not one person that wants to be, uh, have unwanted uh, sexual um, input. Not one person that wants to have their boundaries um, crossed. They want to have the gift of solitude in their life, the gift of safety, the gift of, of engaging in sexuality on their terms that are mutually agreed upon, not just one-sided. So we agree not to, not, to, um, not to cause any harm with sexuality, to be sensitive to our motivation for engaging in sexuality, uh, and whether or not we're causing any harm. I, I, I often talk about this when I talk about it. In my younger years, I engaged, driven a lot by lust, and there was often a little quiet voice within that said, maybe this isn't the appropriate person to engage with. And sometimes I just bulldozed right through that. And it was always, you know, a, a regret after, a kind of reverberation. And often it would create a, it would, it would create disease and make it actually really hard to practice. So we commit to not killing, not stealing, not causing harm with our sexuality. We take care not to uh, cause harm with our speech. Such a powerful, powerful source of suffering. Look what's happened to our national discourse. What's gotten normalized is bullying and name-calling and so, so much harm caused with speech. And then people are just frozen in, in either anger or frustration or fear or lack of safety and and it's a commitment to speak with truthfulness that's a that one's been lost too truthfulness timeliness harmoniousness goodwill um, for the benefit of whoever you're speaking to not to harm them so much speech cause so much harm caused by speech so a commitment to keep the training guidelines, the last one, and we know how much sorrow and suffering comes from the excessive use of intoxicants, drugs and alcohol. And I include, and that, this may sound kind of trite, but I include cell phones that cloud the mind and produce a kind of carelessness and heedlessness. Of course, the drugs and the alcohol have, have such a an insidious impact. I suppose the phones do too, but, but so much suffering caused. And then the commitment to clarity of mind and, and, and uh, 
and harmlessness, not causing any harm with the use of intoxicants. So that's the second pillar, dana, sila, bhavana. Bhavana is the training of our mind. It's the training of, of um, at the core of bhavana is, is cultivating a, um, a persistent kind of energy and effort for practice. It means training in mindfulness, training in concentrate, the conditions that lead to concentration. What are the conditions that lead to concentration? Mind and body in the same location. Mind and body in the same location. This is what brings calm. This is what brings steadiness. This is what begins to recharge our energy and give us a sense of faith and confidence in where we are and what we're doing that then produces even more moments of clarity and mindfulness that then allows us to see with wisdom how things are, how things are unfolding. And then to make wiser choices with our body, speech, and mind. So training of our mind, the, the, the formal meditation practice, up to as, as much as you want every day, but four periods. Could be, as I think our last Facebook page said, it could be three-minute three periods, but I recommend longer periods. Just stretch them out if you can. But if you... If, if three is all you have or all that you're willing to do, three minutes, find your body. Find your breath. Scan your body from head to toe. If you can make it from the top of your head to the tips of your toes, you'll already experience a stilling. And then check the state of your heart and mind. Check your mood. Check to see. This is part of mind training. Check to see if there are any hindrances present. The hindrances of desire. Whether your mind is in a state of craving. If you're feeding that and not noticing it, you're creating suffering for yourself and maybe others. Notice whether aversion is in your mind. Notice whether restlessness is in your mind. Notice whether dullness is in your mind. Notice whether doubt's in your mind. Check the hindrances. That didn't take long to name them and to go through that. And then check what you're thinking about. What you've been thinking about. That took maybe a minute and a half to even describe that. That's a quickie. A period every day of the four. A period every day where you're, you're developing the, the radiation of, of goodwill. Of caring of joy, of sympathetic joy, tuning into and joining in the happiness of others. Tuning in to, your, to a, a widening circle of caring so that it's not just sentimental love that you feel, but you start to feel that your capacity for this universal wish for all beings to be happy and actually feel it as a widening of your own consciousness. Our consciousness has no limit. It's not stuck between your ears. And it could start as big as this room. It's like the it's like music. It's it's like a conch shell that's being that's blown. It just goes, and it's the same with loving kindness. It just spreads, and compassion. It just spreads, and joy just spreads, and equanimity. It becomes our mind becomes skylike, impartial, able to accommodate joys and sorrows much more easily. 
four times or sometime in the day, radiate loving kindness. And as those of you who know me, I do a lot of radiating loving kindness. Sometimes I target different beings, though. And rather than, you don't have to develop the whole uh, traditional training of benefactor and friend and neutral person and enemy and, and all beings. You can just, under your breath, wish everybody. And I do it when I'm driving because that's where I'm most prone to ill will. So I go, may you be happy, may you be happy, may you be happy, may you, call it stealth metta. You be happy. And I often tell the story of when I moved here and it seemed like a kind of cold place, San Francisco. And I had just come off of a long practice period, a three-month meditation period, and I said, I, I, some, I've got to do something here. And I started, each person that I met on the street, or I didn't meet them, but I saw them, and I would say, I love you, I love you, may you be happy, may you be... And I, within minutes, I felt at home. Try it. Don't let a, a single day pass without a little stealth metta. See, let's see where we're going. Okay, that's one list. Maybe we don't have time for it. I'll just go through the second list, which includes part of the first list. Um, the second list I was going to do is really the Eightfold Path, but you can study that. That's basically sila or eth- conduct, samadhi, which is the bhavana, the training, and panya is wisdom. And that is reflecting every day. Take one of your periods or part of one of your periods and reflect on the teachings, uh, the truth of the teachings. Okay, the first teaching to reflect on every day is the Four Noble Truths. It's basically this life has stress in it and it has the stress and inevitability of sickness, of aging, of dying, the stress of change the stress of frustrated desire, the stress of wounded pride, which is just not possible to secure. Just that in general, the stress that comes from the constant change of every single moment. So to reflect every day on the truth of, of, of dukkha, but also as a little sidebar, reflect every day on the reality of impermanence. In the in the monasteries, they're chanting every day, all things are impermanent, they arise and they pass away. To be in harmony with this truth brings great happiness. It brings a relief of this t- constant tight fist of grasping and allows a kind of open space. And it comes through this reflection on impermanence. It's wonderful to notice impermanence in our practice moment to moment at our, as our sensations change, our thoughts change, our moods change. But to reflect on it as well just normalizes the reality that life has stress in it, the stress of change and loss. And what keeps it, what turns that essential stress into mental suffering is resisting it, denying it, wanting it to be other than the way it is. And that expresses itself as this constant search for something that, that uh, search for something that will give me the relief from that reality. But most of the things that we grasp for relief actually are subject to the same change. And so they leave us more dissatisfied. So by realizing that everything is in a state of change, we learn not to 
cling, not to hold on, not to grasp. We learn that the end of that suffering is to let go, is to let go all day long, let go, do everything with a mind that lets go. And then the last truth, you, the Eightfold Path will teach you how to let go and teach you how to create out of the life that you're actually living uh, a life of letting go. It doesn't matter. It's not based on the form of your life. As long as you're not selling weapons or drugs for a living or intentionally causing harm with your livelihood, your, any livelihood can be turned into, into um, practice. Everybody you work with, non-harming. Every time you walk down the hall, mindful attention. Every time you turn on and off your computer, whatever you're doing, you can bring practice. So that's Dana, wait, that's Sila Samadhi Panya. That's the Noble Eightfold Path. The last list and the one we'll do as our formality before we close. Uh, it'll be part of our formality. The last list is the uh, going, is the taking of refuge every day. Uh, sometime every day remembering, and this is part of remembering your aspiration. Rather than going to distraction for refuge, rather than going to uh, your phone for refuge, Remember that um, you want to, if you agree with me, if you're, if you're on board with this, you want to go to the Buddha for refuge, which means you want to go to that in you which is awake and your capacity to awaken and to, to live in joy, to live in peace, to live in kindness, to live in ease. That's going to the Buddha for refuge. Go to the Dharma for refuge. Go to the whatever is happening in the present moment. What does a Buddha know? The Buddha knows the Dharma. What's occurring? Back to nature. Back. Dharma is nature. But it's also the teachings. Going to the teachings as your support. The teachings that I just shared. Going to the Sangha for refuge. Remembering that no person does this alone. No one can do this alone. We need support. And for that part of it, the nobody can do this alone, I highly recommend, not mandatory, but I highly recommend that you find someone to do this 100 days with, that you check in with, just in some brief way every day. Find a buddy. Does that seem workable? Find a buddy. And... I know people, when I mentioned this some years ago, I'm not sure if it was for this or I recommended some gratitude practice or something and I recommended that you get a gratitude buddy. I think it was almost 10 years ago. And there's somebody I mentor who lives up in Oregon who, who started that day with she and her partner and they, they got a buddy and they, the three of them have been checking in every day for 10 years. A little bit of something. I'm pretty sure it's every day. It may be every week. I'm sorry. I may have screwed up. Sorry, Linda. <laughs> uh, so just to reinforce this, I'd like us all to, um, if you are 
choosing to join this retreat. This is a way of consecrating it, a way of creating a container for this next hundred days. And what we'll do is we'll we'll, uh, chant the refuges in the Pali language, essentially saying, I go to the Buddha for refuge, I go to the Dharma for refuge, I go to the Sangha for refuge, three times. And then we will, I will read the Thich Nhat Hanh um, training guidelines, the precepts, so that you live a life of non-harming during this time. And hopefully this will carry you a little bit and you can refer to the five training precepts. So first we'll do a little chant. I'll, I'll do a brief introduction, then we'll do this call and response. Han tamayam buddharatana satinayanja karoma se namo tasa, your turn. Namo tasa, bhagavato, arahato, don't be bashful. Sama sambutasa, namo tasa, bhagavato, arahato, Sama Sambhutasa Namo Tasa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambhutasa Buddhang Saranang Gachami Dhammam Saranam Gachami Saranam Gachami Sangam saranam gachami Dutiampi Buddham saranam gachami Dhammam saranam gachami Sangam saranam gachami Tatiampi Buddham saranam gachami Dhammam saranam gachami Sangam saranam gachami Just to contextualize the training guidelines of not killing, stealing, causing harm with our sexuality, uh, causing harm with our speech, or causing harm with intoxicants to ourselves or others. Uh, uh, I'll contextualize it by re- reading the um, Thich Nhat Hanh precepts. Aware of the violence in the world, and of the power of nonviolent resistance, I stand in the presence of the ancestors, the earth, and future generations, and vow to cultivate the compassion that seeks to protect each living being. Aware of the poverty and greed in the world, and of the intrinsic abundance of the earth, I stand in the presence of the ancestors, the earth, and future generations, and vow to cultivate the simplicity, gratitude, and generosity that have no limits. Aware of the abuse and lovelessness in the world, and of the healing that is made possible when we open to love, 
I stand in the presence of the ancestors, the earth, and future generations, and vow to cultivate respect for the beauty and erotic power of our bodies. Aware of the falsehood and deception in the world and the power of living and speaking the truth, I stand in the presence of the ancestors, the earth, and future generations and vow to cultivate the ability to listen and clarity and integrity in all I communicate by my words and actions. Aware of the contamination and desecration of the world and of my responsibility for life as it manifests through me, I stand in the presence of the ancestors, the earth, future generations, and vow to cultivate discernment and care in what I take into my body and mind. So may these refuges and may these precepts be the cause of happiness for ourselves and for all beings. And may this next hundred days be be fruitful, filled with love and energy and goodwill. And may our hearts and minds be purified, blessed, and may the blessings of our practice, the goodness of our practice, the merit that arises from our practice be shared, given freely to all beings everywhere without exception. May all beings be touched by our life and our love. May all beings be liberated. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.